Podcast. It's kind of one of those things that in hindsight, it's always less painful than when it's right there, but it's it does kind of cement in your mind that, hey, I can do hard things. And that is a nice thing to have in your pocket. Like, hey, if I can do that, then I can do this. Welcome to Think Business with Tyler, sharing our methods and strategies for success. Join in on our conversations with business owners as we highlight their triumphs and detail how they overcame the challenges they faced while continuing to grow and scale their business. It's time to think life, think success, and think business with your host, Tyler Martin. Welcome to another episode. I'm your host, Tyler Martin. And today we're diving into an extraordinary roller coaster ride of business, bravery, and successful strategy with serial entrepreneur Drake Cyphers. Have you ever wondered what it's like to face your fears on a 200 foot tower in the name of keeping your business alive? How about battling corporate giants using exceptional customer experience as your secret weapon? And importantly, can scaling content actually be the key to your brand's next evolution? So get ready to hear these answers and more. Hey, Drake, welcome to the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. How's it going today? It's going well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Hey, Drake, I love to start out with just learning a little bit about you. Can you tell us about you and what you do right now professionally? Yeah. So uh, I'm originally from Fresno, California. Grew up in a California ghetto and ended up moving over to uh, to Oklahoma, where I've seen... I did the reverse Grapes of Wrath thing, where a family went over from Oklahoma to Fresno, and then I came back because <laughs> there's a lot of opportunity out here. But currently, I create content for leaders, people get paid to think, and uh, kind of been an entrepreneur my whole life. And so happy to, uh, to be on here to talk some about some of my endeavors. Yeah, that's great. So I'd love to start with Skyber. Now, this is a company that you had and I believe you ultimately exited from it. Yeah. I'd love to start about what was the driving force behind Skyber? Tell us a little bit about it and then what got you to start it. Yeah, so I was out on a lake building an RV park and it was quite rural. And it was kind of, I describe it as millennial hell because I had to drive 10 minutes to make just a phone call. The cell <laughs> service was so bad. And so along with that, the internet service was just atrocious. So I was talking to people and it was it was crazy how I could very easily, you know, in small talk, you're sometimes wondering about what to say and how to have a conversation. And you could just bring up the internet and then 20 minutes of diatribe was ready for anybody and everybody. Right. And so I kind of had this idea in my head. It was like, I, you know, I had a, a, a friend of mine that I knew um, and I was like, hey, man, maybe you should look into this. You're a disabled vet. Like, because they would always talk about, well, Bolt is coming. Well, Bolt was a company that got uh, a mix of USDA loans and grants to build a fiber to home network up there. And I was like, man, this is like a real problem, right? Whenever confronted with a pain, entrepreneur goes, hey, how can there be a way to fix this? So ended up uh, reaching out to him and mentioning it to him. He kind of took the ball a little bit, ran with it some. And then ultimately, he ended up hitting a few walls and asked me to come on to help get the fundraising process going, get everything funded and actually and get the company started. So uh, came on, redid some of the marketing materials, the performas, stuff like that. And then when I did the road show, you know, going, raising money, pitching people and, uh, you know, we're able to raise the money, got started. And, uh, you know, everybody has, has these awesome expectations of the beginning and then the business starts. And so, yeah, so that was, that was kind of what, what spurred that going on and kind of the beginnings of, of everything that happened with Skyber. Wow. So this whole sky, when you first started, I mean, how did you, was this your first business? 
No, no. So my first business, okay. I was 16, uh, washing cars, and then I had that business. And then right out of school, I started a digital agency with my best friend. And we we grew that a little bit. Then I ended up selling my, my shares to him. And then I've had uh, the RV park that I was building at the time. I wasn't, I didn't own it, but I was kind of like the right hand entrepreneur at hire for for the guy that owned the company is like, just send me in to kind of go take and build stuff. And so, so yeah, so I, I was familiar with the entrepreneurial journey. So this wasn't my first rodeo. Got it. Got it. So now that makes a little more sense to me because it sounds like this was a big leap, but it, it still was a big leap. No, no, not taking anything away, but something you've kind of been through. And the fact that you kind of exited, it sounded like you had a partner buy you out of one. You already kind of had a little bit mm-hmm. of experience of getting out of a, a business that you were involved in. So that's really cool. Yeah. You know, I know you have this fear of heights or, or you did at one point. Can you kind of tell the story behind that? Because I think it's it's funny. Yeah. So when you start a business, you know, there's there's how you think it's going to go and then how it actually goes. Right. And so, you know, I came into this like, I'm good at ops. I'm good at, you know, marketing finance side. And then my business partner was the guy who knew about the telecom industry. Right. And so I joined thinking, cool, I can do office stuff, backend stuff, get the marketing and advertising going really well, make sure all the processes are super efficient. And then you know, you go in with the division of responsibility and kind of one after the other, um, whether just one after the other, the different things that he was responsible for just stopped working out. And every time one of those things failed, it kind of got thrown onto my back. And so we're an internet service provider. And so that involved us going up and having a collection of towers that sent internet across the airwaves to an antenna that was mounted on the roof of someone's house. And so getting into it, I didn't expect you're going to have to go up on those roofs <laughs> or you're going to have to go up on those towers. Right. And because I'm terrified of heights. But when you start a business, you're faced with a burn rate and hard decisions have to be made. And so the decision was my you know, my partner ended up leaving and the the contractors who we had who were climbing the towers were, you know, we had to get rid of them to conserve cash. And so that led to me staring up at a 150 foot tower and our equipment was 135 up on it. And I had to either learn how to climb that tower and survive, or we were going to go out of business. Wow. And so I have a whole story about my first time really climbing that that's, that's kind of crazy, but needless to say, I was not comfortable, but you're an entrepreneur. And when the rubber meets the road, what, makes you or breaks you is your willingness to do what needs to get done, regardless of, you know, however you may feel about it at the time. How many of those did you have to do? Oh, at, uh, there were points where I was doing it multiple times a week. Oh my gosh. So this, the tower is it's in a smaller town. And so it's literally the tallest thing around. Right. And so I'm to give people comparison, you say 135 feet. What is that? That's about the equivalent of a 10 to 12 story building, but you're climbing it on the outside. <laughs> I recently read this article. Gosh, I don't remember the details, but it was one of those articles like how you can make $150,000 a year with just working two days a year. And so Mm -hmm. I started reading the article and it's about how you have to climb up this tower. And I don't remember the feet. I imagine it was Mm -hmm. probably 130 plus feet to change a light bulb. And basically you do it twice a year and you get paid something like $75,000. But Mm -hmm. it it went, there was, I don't know if there's a video or pictures, but it showed you when you get towards the top, it's like literally just like one little pole 
tall with wind mm-hmm. and you've got to go up there and change a light bulb. It's like, I, no, thank you. I think you could keep your money. <laughs> yeah. And I, so you asked how much I did. I don't think I answered you well. I, I would have to do it sometimes multiple times a week. Wow. And multiple times a week for multiple years in a row. And so I think the, we had by the end, by the time that I got out of it, we were, I had to climb multiple 200 foot towers. And so, yeah, you get up there and it's Oklahoma and Oklahoma is very different than where you're located in California. It's windy. And so I'm climbing a tower with a, you know, a storm about 20 miles out and I can see it and the wind is starting to pick up and the whole thing is just like shaking. So, you know, it was harrowing, but ultimately, like I said, that's, that's just what you got to do if you want, want the business to succeed. And so, you know, do what you got to do. So do you still consider yourself scared of heights or do you think you've overcome that? Absolutely. That's the thing. It's not about, I didn't get over my fear of heights. I just learned to manage my panic attacks really well (laughs) because I went, uh, you know, any idea that I would have gotten over my fear of heights was I was totally, that illusion may have got just completely went away when I went to Miami after I'd sold the company, foreshadowing. Uh, But (laughs) when I went to Miami, uh, we stayed at an Airbnb that was a high rise. And so it was about 43 stories up and i looked down i just every just came back like the that feeling that you get right in your gut where it's like everything sinks down to your stomach and yeah so i'm i'm still very much afraid of heights what was the feeling like after the first time that you had done it and you're coming back down where was it euphoric or was it like i'm just glad i got it over with so the first time i got halfway up and there was a power cable draped across the safety wire so i had to unhook from the tower Uh, there's a backup but the backup is on one of the little pegs sticking out and so it kind of seems scary but i had to unhook and my hands were shaking so much i dropped it oh my gosh so i had to climb halfway down the tower i had to climb halfway down the tower with just the backup hook and that was kind of terrifying but no actually uh, the first time climbing i went into a panic attack couldn't speak for like four hours and slept for like two days straight. And then two days later, I successfully climbed it. So it was it was anything but euphoric. But you know, it's kind of one of those things that in hindsight, it's always less painful than when it's right there. But it's, it does kind of cement in your mind that, hey, I can do hard things. And that is a nice thing to have in your pocket. Be like, hey, if I can do that, then I can do this. Yeah, that's powerful. I don't think I could do it. I'm scared of heights. I mean, I I think part of me would be like, okay, well, the company's going to go out of business. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I could do it. I mean, it's pretty cool that you could do it. And then the candor that you have that two days you slept and your hands were shaking, I mean, like right. really kind of brings it to life. That, that's, man, that's a really cool story. It was shock. Like I, I literally could not get more. I couldn't put three words together. Wow. I was just so like, I was so shaken because I say I climbed up and dropped it. I waited 20 minutes and then I went up again and dropped it again. Ay, ay, ay. And so that was my first time climbing. And so like, then like, yeah, like I said, I went, it was kind of a nuts, nuts experience, but you know, you have it. And now I've got a story to tell. Yeah, that is a great story. Now you've also, I mean, life, you know, you've had your fair of trials and tribulations. You've also been severely in debt. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, when we were um, just with that company, right? Because that's what we're staring down the barrel of, right? You go raise investor money. Well, the investor and, you know, I'm super thankful for my investor who, you know, saw the idea, worked with me to to get everything going. But, you know, that's part of the impetus of you got to climb the tower because you're in debt and there's no way to pay it back without the company, 
you know, without the company actually making, or there's no way to pay him back without climbing the tower and continuing the business. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, kind of staring down that and then, you know, all the, the normal trials that go into any startup, right. You've got this cash flow that you got to make the cash flow that you have to, to bump up. And so, you know, it's just the trials that normal entrepreneurs that raise money face. Yeah. Yeah. No, I got it. Now you've mentioned partners a couple of times. You've had partners mm-hmm. in business. And I think you even alluded to a little bit that, you know, you've worked with partners that have dropped the ball on you. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts around having a partner in ventures? Are you like, yeah, thumbs up. It's just got to be the right one or stay away from it and do it your own. I think that I've had ones go really well. So like my first company I was, or I guess second after my first company after school, I was in it with my best friend. We ended up parting ways and it was amicable. He's still my best friend, right? So I've I've been through the positives of two people or multiple people that are aligned, that can, that are going the same direction, that are working together, that are supporting each other and filling in the complementary nature of where one is strong and the other one's weak. They can help each other out and having that go both ways. Um, and then I've also had the, you know, with this one in particular with Skyver, where whether it's just through shortcomings on their end or or however you want to define it, things don't work out. I think that it really depends on who you are as a person. I would probably do partnerships again, but I would be very particular in the skill sets and personalities that would would come alongside. And I would be just more studious on what what I select. But I would I would do it again. I'm not a there's some people I know who are like they just partnership, 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 because they're easy to, they're just very good at seeing the complementary nature of stuff. I think I need more diligence when I go into a partnership in the future, uh, just to make sure that uh, some of the things that people say they're going to do, they're actually able to do. So I, I think it goes both ways. I don't think there's a total right answer. I think it comes more from self-awareness being incredibly important to making that kind of a decision. Yeah, yeah. I've heard definitely heard pros and cons. I mean, I've definitely seen people have very successful partnership relationships and I've seen some really horrid breakups too. And you know, it's interesting. There's usually like certain things when they go bad, you know, it's a uh, a lot of times it can be a divorce uh within mm-hmm. that partner and that's getting them off track. It can be alcohol or substance abuse problems and it could be just sometimes not following through, like, you know, dropping the ball like mm-hmm. you said and then the other partners having to pick it up. So, yeah, partnerships yeah. are interesting. I mean, when they work, they're they're like marriages really. When they work, they're great. When they don't, they can be really yucky. It's totally true. I think that's that's absolutely true. Yeah. So, hey, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Skyber and just this whole like David and Goliath type mm-hmm. thing. So, Skyber's this tiny company, at least initially when you started out. Mm-hmm. And when I think of internet companies, I think of these massive, uh, you know, massive competition out there. What was your strategic thoughts in terms of uh, carving out your own niche? Like, how did how did you intend to get around some of these major players? Yeah, so I think it's important when you're an entrepreneur and you're facing, you know, you're going up against giants, right? And a lot of what you can do is really try to evaluate the landscape and see like, hey, what are they missing? And a lot of times what they're missing involves their size. So internet service providers. I don't think you call your internet service provider because you're just having a great time. Hey, just want to let you know the internet's going great, right? And so because of the way internet service providers are set up, it's a marginal return on investments, the biggest thing. And so what they're looking at is if we add this here, how much more incremental revenue will we make? And a lot of times where they 
cut out, as anybody who's listening probably knows, is customer service. And so our big niche and kind of how we positioned ourselves was we're the rebels, we're the small guys, we're the ones who will actually answer the phone, we're the ones who are local, we're the ones who will take care of you, and we're the ones who have the most updated network. So early on, we were way faster than anybody else in the community because they'd let the infrastructure kind of go by the wayside. And so we were the fastest was our initial play. But as they adjusted their infrastructure and up their advertised speeds, we became we were on the slower side. But our competitive advantage then was our stuff works. We give you what we're say we're going to give you. And we're going to fix anything within 24 to 48 hours if there's something that's wrong. And so that worked really well and we were you know growing consistently but then when the pandemic hit and everybody gets locked in their homes and the internet really really matters that was when that messaging really translated to you know if your kid's school and your job depends on your internet connection you're no longer price sensitive you will pay whatever it takes to make sure stuff works and you want people who will be there who will fix it you don't want to wait four hours on hold time because you have a meeting in 30 minutes that you have to make sure that your stuff is up back up. And so that's where we really saw a whole bunch of, of growth. And during COVID, we actually grew 50% during 2020, and then another uh, 30% with no major CapEx uh, post acquisition. And so after we were acquired, and so it was really just trying to have the network set up right, have it built right, so that we were able to capitalize when we had dramatic growth surge. If you're a business owner feeling stuck in your business, overwhelmed, responsible for everything that happens, and working long hours, Tyler helps his clients develop processes, hire high-performing team members, and better understand their financial metrics and numbers to allow for a more predictable, less hands-on business. To schedule a free, no-pressure consultation, head to thinktyler.com and click the meeting button. Tyler would love to see if he can help you work on your business, not in your business. Schedule a consultation today at thinktyler.com. Think life, think success, think business. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on ElectroCast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. And so it was really just trying to have the network set up right, have it built right, so that we were able to capitalize when we had dramatic growth surge. So that tweaking of language, was that pre-COVID or was that, did you guys massage your message during COVID and then it resonated with your audience? No, it was pre-COVID because I realized like, so if if you're thinking about your internet service right now, Unless you have one of those magical numbers like that are in the hundreds or a gig, the gig is the you know the big buzzword around everywhere. You don't know how much internet you actually need. And so a lot of internet service providers, they just put up, you know, the, this was especially true when we were running it in, let's say, 2018, 2019. They were putting up these numbers, but nobody actually knew what those numbers meant. Nobody knew what they needed. They just wanted to come home, sit down turn on Netflix and have it work. And if it didn't work, they wanted to be able to pick up the phone, call somebody, get an answer quickly. 
And then if it was a big issue, have it fixed within the next 24 hours. Like changing the messaging that way towards the end of it, we weren't even talking about our speeds. We were just, hey, here's what you can do with it. And rather than trying to pretend that you understand as the customer what you're talking about, let's just talk to you like you're a person and talk to you about what you actually want to do with it. And our reputation is that we're the best at customer service. Our reputation is that we make sure stuff doesn't go down. And so that's what really helped beforehand. But then that message really picked up when more people were looking for other options. Yeah. I love that tweak too, because it's like, that's a losing battle if you're talking speed. Like like you said, advertising speed, mm-hmm. which means they couldn't deliver anyway. But they, they yeah. you, even if they had to deliver, they probably could because they have the resources. So it's kind of like you're, you're always going to be a step behind on that one. But you're right. I mean, if you take the angle of, hey, we're going to be the highest touch service, you can beat them on that legitimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great strategy. Yeah, and that's the thing too. I mean, they're multi-billion dollar companies. And so if they want to price me out, which was essentially the strategy since we started, was the once they realized that we were coming, they were like, they just started dropping prices and everything and people would get it. And then we'd still get calls going, hey, we got this, but it doesn't work. And so then they would switch, end up switching to us. And knowing that you could get a hold of somebody when you needed to was what was the most important thing. Yeah, that's huge. Hey, I want to shift gears into talking about exiting a company, selling a company, and just that whole process. Was there something in your process of selling Skyber kind of, that you can share that's kind of like a behind-the-scenes discussions that you had? I'd, I'd love to kind of get into that a little bit. Yeah. So as we've kind of already mentioned, climbing towers wasn't really my thing. Right. And so looking at the landscape, I knew that the government was getting ready to dump a whole bunch of money into this bid in this in this process right of of you know we went, went through the electrification of america now we're going through the internet internetification of the rural areas right and so knowing that looking at our size i'm looking at the landscape going hey realistically there need to go raise go apply for those grants which is going to be difficult at our size i need to go you know raise 3 million bucks to be able to build this out ourselves or i can sell to somebody who is going to be really well positioned to take care of our customers and to build out a fiber network and to do all this. And so I just was monitoring that government funding. I found the different people that were going to be uh, winning money in our area. And I just approached them. I was like, hey guys, if I were you, I'd be looking to buy rather than build. And realistically, it's going to be, you guys are all doing multi-state expansions. So it might be kind of difficult for you to find another me to run this for a few years while you're getting up and going. And I've already got a built-in customer base. So you can come in and compete. Here's all the different ways I'm going to compete with you. And it can be difficult. Or if you just want to buy me, cool, then we'll we'll work that out and we can negotiate. And um, you know, it was really great being able to negotiate while you're growing at 2% a week because it, it helps with negotiations a lot. That adds up. <laughs> yeah, it helps with negotiation a lot. Because we'd we'd have we'd sit down at the negotiation table and you know they'd talk you know typical due diligence process with a the company they come in they look at everything and they're like all right well cool here's some of the things that you know we want to take a discount on this is going to affect the price and I could just say hey that's awesome like cool I think I can totally do that but I'm going to need to go talk to my investor and I'm just going to need to think about it to make sure that we can do that probably take me about two weeks to do that and you know by the time those two weeks have passed we'll have grown enough that we'll be back at the same price. 
So the longer you wait, the more expensive I get. And that was that I mean, it's just a helpful way to, to negotiate because we are growing. And ultimately on their end, like after acquisition, they grew 30% with no extra CapEx. So it's not like they got a huge benefit from riding that tailwind. Yeah. So how did you negotiate that deal? Basically, did you, so you sounded like you kind of pitched them in a way that you were going to come on board and help them continue to grow the division. I guess division is probably what it ended up. Um, and so you kind of, in a way, bought yourself a job and it sounds like maybe some stock. Is that essentially how that played out? No. So internet service providers, internet, well, one, just for, for the audience, internet service yeah. providers are valued on a multiple of gross, gross revenue. Mm. Um, because the, the assumption is EBITDA doesn't matter as much when you're, when you're valuing them just because the, they know that they're bigger. And so they know that they're going to put their efficiencies in your scale. And so mainly you're just buying a revenue stream. So I negotiated averages about one times revenue, um, all the way down to like a 0.6 in gross revenue, just depending on how good you are. We ended up negotiating a 1.3 times gross revenue. Wow. And then I had that on a seller note. And then I negotiated a separate deal that was an employment contract where I got I got a percentage of gross revenue. I can't get into the details of sure, all sure. that stuff. I, no, but I, totally I, got, I got compensated based on the growth of the division as a whole afterwards. But I kept those separate and not... The employment agreement was uh, was contingent upon performance, but the actual sale of the company was not. And so I didn't have an earn out or anything like that because it was growing fast. There was no reason to negotiate that. And then I assume that 1.3 must have exceeded your initial investor that you ultimately probably were able to pay off over time. Yeah. So we had been making we'd been making payments back while we were growing. I had kind of come in clamped everything down and you know I was managing the cash cycle while being able to make payments back to him but yeah then I was it was a fun meeting when I was like hey let's go grab lunch and he didn't know it was coming and I just showed up with a check for the full amount and he was wow. overjoyed so it was that was that'll probably go down as one of my favorite memories for the rest of my life was just being able to surprise him because he was like what so it was really cool what a cool story. That is a cool story. So then you, it sounds like you had a couple of years, two, three years that you were then supporting this division. Did you ultimately leave that once the employment agreement was up or take me through the next phase of that? Yeah. So I ended up staying on uh, about 14 months um, to help support and and try and grow a few of the things uh, that they had had going on. They had to build out some extra towers uh, just across the state to try and expand coverage. And so I helped some with that. And yeah, I mean, that was that was most of it. it was about 14 months. We just got to a point where based on some of the decisions that that they made, I felt like what made the most sense was for my salary not to be a burden on the division so that they could they could make the decisions that were best for them based on the way that they had executed some of the other stuff. Yeah. So that was just kind of the impetus. I was like, I want you guys to well good. Do you think just for other people that are li- out there listening, mm-hmm. what would be a couple things you could summarize if someone was thinking about selling their business? Um, what are a couple things like maybe they should look for, think of, whether it be before a buyer comes in or when a buyer comes in, whatever comes to mind. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So I think preparing for sales is a really important decision making process. What I tried to do was I at our size, right? So it's hard to think about how do I sell the company and not replace myself, right? And so what I did was I took the different jobs that I did and I did my best to try and segment them and separate them and not put a sort of unique spin on them. 
to where I wanted Skyver to be forefront with the brand, but I tried to segment stuff so that I knew that a bigger company was buying me and here's the job that this person will do that they'll replace. Here's the job that this person will do that they'll replace. So here are the four people that they need to have in place in order to replace me. And so when I'm talking to them, I'm easily segmenting out, here's how this is all done. So it doesn't look like I'm this knot and bottleneck where everything comes to me and gets stuck. And I think for anybody trying to sell the business, if you're not big enough to have a middle management structure, then that's really kind of how you have to do it to position yourself so that you're very easily acquired and not to put your value, not to put the value of the business on you, but to try and take that and put that as much on the actual business and create processes and trainings so that your employees are able to be independent thinkers and make decisions without without that. Because so with my employees, it was really cool that I had them trained well enough to where compared to their equivalent position in the acquiring company, they were doing, they were at the top tier of what they were able to do, plus another half of what the position above them would be. And so they're tier one support, but they're also doing about half of the tier two jobs. And so I think that training is really important to where the acquirer knows, hey, I'm actually getting an asset. And it's not just here are all the small, unimportant pieces that all filter to make the owner do a good job. It's like, I'm actually buying a company. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Good. That's good stuff. Hey, I want to shift gears. So now you're doing Content Gym. What's your strategy around that? What What is Content Gym? And, and what's your strategy in terms of where you see this going? Yeah. So I think that one of the biggest things that I've thought about over the last, you know, after, after selling was the role of information and video in the way that companies are known. And I really have thought that like, as people get paid to think, like sometimes it could be really hard to like articulate your value proposition. Anybody who's a consultant or an executive knows that you essentially just get paid to make good decisions, right? You get paid to put things in in process. Well, before now, before you know TikTok kind of took over with short form video, that was difficult to do in an Instagram picture or an Instagram post or a Facebook post. You end up writing long blog posts that people aren't reading. And so I thought video was a really important medium to convey that. And so now what I'm doing is helping leaders convey their message and their value and their thought leadership in a way that is easy to record and not that, you know, 1930s or not, sorry, 1930s <laughs> in that 2000, that 2013 web video here at Jimmy's place, we do this specific thing and it's stiff and it's scripted. But if you could have a conversation kind of like a podcast, like you and I are doing, this is natural and you can see the expertise come out very easily. Well, why not do that sort of a recording and then chop all of it up? And now you don't have to worry about your social media content anymore. Yeah. I love watching TikTok videos because it's just the psychology of a lot of those ads they're so under the radar in terms of their advertising that they're advertising something like they get straight into the practical use of it as if and you know they're all weaved in with regular TikTok videos yeah. and it's just really fascinating like how far this has come as far as to your point like the videos used to be you know we'd stand out there and be like really dorky video of saying yeah we're yeah. we have our bike shop or whatever it is and now it's just like they integrate you into and it's just so woven in it's compelling too it's fascinating so is that something that you you're really good at or, or that you're working on that art and you help clients do that? And is there any particular medium that you think is better than others for CEOs and say like uh, consultants? 
Yeah. So in December, I launched this really in December. And so it's coming up on a year. We'll pre-launch with a select group of clients. So far, we've gotten well over a million views for, for them. And so, you know, we're getting views and it's translating to dollars. And so that part's great. I like podcasts a lot because I think that it's conversational and we can have, a, it's kind of like a coffee meeting. CEOs will go do coffee meetings all day and their expertise, you know, it's just dripping off them. It's so easy to see, right? But then you get them in front of a cold dead camera lens and it's like, uh. so coming up with a process that makes recording the video painless by just having a conversation with someone is really kind of the way I like to go with it. But then we end up clipping it, right? Because if it's video, then it, you can chop it up and now it's discoverable. And by harnessing the platforms, you know, TikTok, YouTube, uh, Instagram, the algorithmic discovery that's available, you're able to get your message put in front of people without you having to manually build a list, which can be difficult with podcasts and the whole discovery of podcasts, right? So that's what that's kind of the way that I've I've tried to approach it just because it removes the barriers and so you know in you know anywhere from 1 to 4 hours a month people are getting the ability to post every single day and they're seeing results from it so very cool very cool what do you recommend in terms of posting like I've read you know nowadays people are saying hey you're supposed to post 3 times a day what's your thoughts around how often should a professional be posting should they have a content calendar in terms of different types of topical subjects that they're talking about? What are your thoughts around that? I think that if you had asked me this six to 12 months ago, my answer would have been different. The Back then, yeah, you could post that many times a day. But I think for smaller platforms, and this some of this is platform dependent, right? So like LinkedIn, LinkedIn, you wouldn't want to post at the same cadence that you might on TikTok. But a lot of the platforms, Instagram in particular, and YouTube, you don't need to post quite as much. If you do once a day, that's great. The consistency is great for once a day. Um, I think the days of posting three to five times, unless you're getting consistent traction on those, you'll burn out your feed if you post more than once a day. And Instagram especially has tweaked it to where they're trying to show your stuff to more of your internal audience. And so if you're trying to build your audience, I would say go with once a day until you get it down to where you can get good traction and good adoption and you're building enough value. And then you can start to expand that. Um, but early on, once a day is plenty. And if you think about it, once a day is kind of a lot, especially if you're doing video. Like it's that's what that's what's been shocking about our process is the clients that I have are just like, wow, this is way easier than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So what do you do when a typical client, do you take them through where you're like just interviewing them and then you handle the chopping up of it into something useful? Yeah, that's cool. So you just kind of turn it into a conversation, it sounds like. Yeah, the goal is to let the expert be the expert, right? And they don't want to know or care about all the softwares, all the lighting, all the cameras, all the everything. And so we've got the system, you know, here's the equipment to use here. It's very easy to set up and then just sit down and have a conversation with somebody. You be the expert. Well, I'll ask the questions that help get this out of you. And so you just show up and talk and then you leave and then everything's done for you. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. Hey, I always like to end with two questions. One, I'd love to ask you if you had some inspiration or some feedback for entrepreneurs and business owners, is there anything that stands out that you'd love to share that could maybe help us run our business better or even our personal life? I think that one of the biggest things is understanding the customer experience. And so what is it like for a customer when they interact with your company? 
how much is the responsibility shared or based on, you know, how much thought do they have to put into something? How much effort did they have to make to connect with you? And I think that's a really big thing that if you can hone that and make that as easy as possible and enjoyable as possible down to the nitty gritty of even the way you answer your phones, I think that that is something that helps reduce friction, which can really help your business grow. Very cool. And then another thing I'd love to ask you, is there a book, podcast, TV show, something you're listening to or recently have listened to that you like that maybe you could share with us? Yeah, I would say my my favorite book is what I would recommend. It's called Getting More by Stuart Diamond. And he's Wharton School of Business's professor. I guess he's recently retired, but he was their negotiations professor for like 20, 30 years. And he condensed the entire course down to a book. I've read it five or six times. It is absolutely amazing, not only for negotiation, but just communication in general and understanding the way our brains are wired to communicate. And I just, I love the book and I think it's, it's helped me immensely be able to align incentives with people, with stakeholders uh, in order to help me in my business journey. Very cool. I like that. I'll have to pick that up. I'd actually never heard of it. So I'm excited to kind of check it out. The link you gave me, the if people wanted to reach out to you, your LinkedIn profile, Drake Cyphers, I'm saying that correctly, right? Drake Cyphers, S-C-I-F as in Frank, E-R-S as in Sam. I'll, of course, put this in the thinktyler.com show notes. Is that, Drake, if someone was interested in your services, the content gym services, is that would be the best place just for them to message you there? Absolutely. Yeah. Would love to, would love to connect with anybody. Okay. Awesome, man. Hey, well, thanks. Uh, I love the stories and the wisdom that you shared with us. I really appreciate having you as a guest. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Okay. Take care. Bye. That's all for this episode of Think Business with Tyler. But we have plenty more resources to help you in your pursuit of business excellence on our website at thinktyler.com. If you'd like to be featured in a future episode of the show, feel free to reach out to us on social media at think underscore Tyler. We look forward to helping you think life, think success, and think business. DC. I host the rock podcast back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30 minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to back to the arena, the interviews. Electric acid. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Electric acid.